And okay, so our next speaker is Susanna Nagy, it says right here. Um, Susanna is an associate professor of medicine and infectious diseases at Duke University, um, who always have a great basketball team and the so-so football team. Um, but she's gonna, she's really spent all of her career really looking at the issues of, of viral hepatitis and in particular uh, hepatitis C. She's been chair of the HCV guidelines committee um, and uh, is gonna help us make sense of the alphabet soup of genotypes and new drugs and all kinds of stuff. So, welcome. I'm here. Don't run away, everyone's running away. I'm not a Duke fan. <laughs> I'm a twerp. I went to Maryland and now they're in the Big Ten so I don't actually watch basketball anymore. All right, so, um, so thanks for those of you who are sticking around uh, into the wee hours of the afternoon. Um, so about 30 minutes to try to talk about hepatitis C, which um, uh, I'm going to, I think, get a uh, poll to see how many of you guys actually do active HCV treatment, and then we'll try to talk through um, some, some targeted things because it's very difficult to give a talk on hep C in, in 30 minutes. But I do think, uh, you know, the title, it doesn't get much better than this. We probably really are at the point now where we have all the drugs that we're going to have for HCV. I'm shy of, you know, there's now rumors after Croy of whether or not we can pull back out the idea of a long-acting drug for HCV um, and, and cure patients uh, with one shot, you know, for four weeks or something. But shy of that, I really do think we're here for a while, and so we shouldn't see a whole lot of change coming for quite a while. Here's my disclosures. Um, so there is a question here. Um, so in terms of your experience in treating HCV and really based on how much HCV treatment you do currently, So a little bit to a lot, one through five. I think this was playing at dinner last night. <laughs> All right. Okay, so about half of you a little bit, um, and then we have some, some folks who are definitely doing some HV therapy, so that's great. All right. So, um, so again, I'm gonna, and especially since about half of you don't do a lot of this, maybe want to get into it, which I would encourage you to do. Um, we'll talk a little bit about pretreatment evaluation. I think it's really important, in particular, to an ID audience to do that. I'll focus on DA therapies. You know, chronic is where all the approvals are, but acute. If you're doing HIV care, you're probably seeing acute HCV. And if you're not seeing acute HCV, then you may not be looking for it. So we want to talk about that because this is really an issue in our HIV-positive patients. And then we'll talk about some antiretroviral issues, which are, are few and far between, but still remain, remain an issue. So the first thing I wanted to do is, is highlight the guidelines. For those of you, the 55% who are doing this a little bit, I would say this is a fantastic resource for people. And for those of you who haven't accessed it in a while, in September, um, this new version rolled out, which is really nice. It's very much a point and click where you um, see the various treatment populations on the top. So if I were to click on, and I am not savvy in any way, so this is just a screenshot, so probably I could have built this in so I could click and play around, but I don't know how to do that. 
Um, so if you were to click on this, though, if someone knew what they were doing and they clicked on this, treatment naive would drop down into all genotypes, one through six. If you went to one, it would then break out to cirrhosis or no cirrhosis, so that you can now, instead of like the old guideline that went to a page that scrolled forever as you were looking for the patient you were taking care of, this will take you right to that box and right to the explanation um, and the data or the argument behind why that um, recommendation is made. So I think it's a much more user-friendly than it was previously. And in September... Oh, it's HCV guidance. Just Google HCV guidance, and it pops right up. I don't know how much money they paid for that, but um, it's always the first one. And, and then you can see in September, several other um, sections rolled out, which is an HCV resistance primer, um, which, believe it or not, for all of you who do HIV care and, and are very used to the idea of resistance, um, in many cases in HCV, it's completely the opposite of what you're used to in HIV, and so there actually are some differences here um, that are not as, as logical a step from HIV to HCV as you would think. Kidney transplant was added, HCV in pregnancy and in children. So this was a really nice build-out of um, some of the additional spe special populations where there was a need um, to provide guidance. All right, so first question. Um, which of these is not a reason to stage liver disease prior to starting DAA therapy? Um, so not a reason. So what you're looking for is the one here that is not correct. Is it determine length of treatment, risk of liver cancer, candidacy for therapy, or safety of therapy? So we'll give you a minute to answer that question. I don't know why when I write questions, it's always a not answer. It's very confusing. I like this. <laughs> that's Pat Benatar, right? That's the only, th that's the only song I'll actually know. Right. So let's see what you guys say. All right, so you said not would be so we're all over the map here. The, the tr right answer is, is candidacy. So at this point, I would argue at least, um, the guidelines argue and, and many people argue that um, regardless of stage of liver disease, a patient should be treated and cured of their hepatitis C. Um, and uh, depending on what state you live in, that may or may not be your reality, uh, but it is getting better. Um, that's, that's the good news. Um, the reasons that we do stage are to determine length of treatment, are to determine risk of liver cancer and therefore need for ongoing surveillance, and is to determine safety because in a patient with cirrhosis, you need to know whether or not they have decompensated cirrhosis, and we'll talk about this. It involves calculating a child Pew score because some of these regimens are not safe and are contraindicated in people that are child Pew B or C. So staging of liver disease still matters. And I put up here the recommendation, but the bottom line is there's still a need. I just highlighted the three reasons why this is still really important. Um, you know, so, so back in the interferon days, we did liver biopsy. And there was a reason that we did liver biopsy back then. We actually had non-invasive markers, which we'll talk about in the next two slides. But, at the, but in the days of interferon, we really needed to be able to differentiate each stage of liver disease because we made decisions about the risk and benefit of treatment um, based on whether you were 0, 1, or 2, 3, and 4. And there is no non-invasive test that can tell you that, that answer. Only a liver biopsy could do that. And, you know, I know everyone here looks at me when I talk about liver biopsy. It is definitely not something that our patients like to have. Um, it, it, is, it, it also has some weaknesses. So you can see here in this picture that we only capture, capture one little piece of the liver, one twenty thousandth of the liver. And so there is some lack of sensitivity with a liver biopsy. Um, but what we're trying to understand is whether or not patients have severe fibrosis. 
And that, and here in the, at the bottom of the slide, the two ovals, F3 and F4, really these are the patients that are the highest risk for developing complications, in particular liver cancer and liver failure. They're also the hardest to treat and remain the hardest to treat, and probably the ones who gain the most benefit. Although what we do know is that cost-effectiveness analyses, now many of them say, doesn't matter what their stage of liver disease, there is a benefit, a cost-benefit to cure. So for all the reasons that I've kind of mentioned, the, the weaknesses as well as the downsides of this being an invasive test, there's a want to move to non-invasive markers. And we're at the point now where the questions that we used to ask, F0 versus, or S01 versus 234 is no longer relevant. Now the question we ask is, does this patient have cirrhosis, yes or no? And the non-invasive tests are actually much better at answering that question. And that's really why there's a movement now away from liver biopsy, um, as long as you're doing this just for hepatitis C staging and nothing else, uh, to understand um, uh, whether or not this patient's at risk of cirrhosis. So I'm gonna talk about some of the serologic tests that we have for non-invasive testing, and then I'll talk about the uh, elastography or some of the um, radiologic tests that we have. And I don't want to belabor this too much, but the bottom line is this. None of these tests work well. They all perform much better, so a better AUROC, um, so you know, performance test characteristic, if you are trying to ask the question, do they have cirrhosis or not? And I've given you some numbers here, like in a pre-score, which is free because it uses an AST and a platelet, which normally you have on your patients. Um, if it's less than 0.3, you can be quite confident they don't have cirrhosis. If it's greater than 2, you can be quite confident they do. And if it's anywhere in between, which you can see is a very, very large area, um, this test really can't give you that answer. Um, and maybe it's about 60, 60, 40, 70, 30. And for most of us as clinicians, we recognize that's not a good test to make a medical decision, right? Um, and so the other one is a fibro shore in, in, in Europe. It's called a fibro test, but this is one where you pay a lot of money, about 350 to 500 bucks, depending on the insurance, um, to get a fancy test that gives you a report. And because you paid a lot of money for it, it's going to give you an entire page of information. Um, and it's also going to be very convincing in its report. This patient's fiber scan or, or fibro shore was 0.55, which is consistent with, you know, F3 fibrosis. Well, what it doesn't say in parentheses is there's a 40% chance I'm wrong. Um, uh, you didn't pay enough for that. Um, but, but so this is an issue, right? And so as clinicians, we have to be very comfortable with using these tests because the one thing that does keep me up at night in using non-invasive tests is um, not recognizing a patient has cirrhosis, curing their hepatitis C, which we do a lot of, sending them away um, for them to return two years later with a liver cancer that I should have been surveilling for. So as a provider, you have to be very confident in, in using these tests. And what I would always say is if, if, if they don't match, um, you have one of two options. It's, uh, you know, you always use your gut because we're all bedside clinicians. Um, get a liver biopsy, which I know increasingly people don't like to do, um, or three, surveil them if your concern is high. So if this patient has a lower platelet count, you know, all bets are off, and, and I'd be much more worried about them having um, a risk of cancer. So elastography um, uh, is, a, is an option now, and I know that many, increasingly we have elastography machines um, uh, around the country. There are other ways to do this. ARFI, which is um, uh, an acoustic uh, radiation test that you can use with ultrasound, and there are MRI machines that can do elastography as well. So there's increasing access, I would say, to these tests. Um, they do, elastography does perform a bit better, so the AUROC is better for severe fibrosis, you can see almost 90%, but again, this test is not perfect, and, you know, if a patient forgets to um, fast three hours prior and they eat a buttermilk biscuit before they come in to see you, um, that test is going to be really, really high. 
because um, I've had that happen before in my patients, and I know there's no way this person had cirrhosis, and then it comes back, and it's really high, and I say, did you eat? And they're like, oh, yeah, um, I stopped at Bojangles on the way in. Um, so, so, so it's a better test, but again, it still falls in the range in the middle, the gray area where it's not very good at telling you um, where this person falls, and so it's, it's, it's about becoming comfortable with the test. Also, be careful. So at Duke, the way this reports out is cirrhosis, yes, no. It doesn't attempt to answer the question of differentiating stages because the test can't do that. But if you get a report where the report's trying to tell you someone's F2 or F3 or F4, remember that this test cannot do that very well. And again, it's in a 70 to 80% range, which means you're in the 20 to 30% of being wrong range. So just know the test that you're using and be comfortable with, with making a decision outside that range, especially if two tests don't match. So in my practice, what I do is I calculate an a priori FIB4, because I already have those labs, and I get an elastography, and then I hope that they match. And in the end, when they don't match, I either biopsy them or I go with my gut. Um, and, and often that means surveilling these patients for some period of time. All right, so question two, another not question. I'm sorry, I don't know how to write any question that isn't a not answer. <laughs> it's a clear deficit. So which regimen is not approved for initial treatment of HCV? So this means for treatment-naive patients, which one of these regimens is not FDA approved? Is it the albus rucosoprevir regimen, the soft lead, soft valvox, um, the glucoprevir prebentosphere, or soft valpatosphere? So one through five, you have lots of options. They are all approved by the FDA. I think this is playing at dinner last night too. It's a very hip place. So let's see what you guys said. All right, so good. So about so 50, almost 50% 50 of you um, said soft valvox, and that is the correct answer. Soft valvox is not approved in the United States for initial treatment. It is approved in the EU for initial treatment. Um, but not in the U.S. All the others, as we will see, are all approved for initial therapy. All right. So I don't want to belabor this. I imagine a number of you have seen Hep C talks before. Um, but just to think about direct targeted antivirals, very much like in HIV disease, we have multiple classes that target multiple enzymes or proteins that are part of the replication machinery for this virus. We have protease inhibitors, we have NS5A inhibitors, and we have a polymerase inhibitor. So are there other approved drugs not on here? Yes, there are. I'm only targeting the drugs that are, that are recommended regimens per the ASOD IDSA guidelines to simplify this a bit. Because what we need to get to is simplification, not continuing to build things out and, and, and offer regimens that most people wouldn't choose. So again, you actually heard Dr. Sag refer to this. So if it's difficult remembering these, um, there are some ways to, to, to remember this. So anything that ends in Previr is a protease inhibitor. Anything that ends in Osvir is a NS5A. And then Buvir is a polymerase, which we only have one. The asterisks that you see here for many of these means that these only come in a fixed dose combination. So this is a big difference between HIV treatment and HCV treatment, is we don't really get to mix and match. Um, you either get the drug that's made by a particular company um, or, um, or not. But the idea of getting and matching it drugs uh, based on um, uh, resistance patterns, et cetera, is just not something that we have the luxury to do at this point so much in, in HCV. So when starting therapy, there are a list of things that we need to know. Um, and, and once you get through this list, it's possible that the plethora of drugs that we have approved will become much smaller. Um, or you'll still have a plethora of drugs, and then the insurer will tell you which one you're allowed to use, which is mostly the way this goes down. 
Um, but what remains important is genotype and subtype. And so although we have pan-genotypic regimens, there are a few examples where you could make the argument that genotyping is no longer important. Um, but to this day and age, we still have recommendations that are different based on 1A versus 1B, 1 versus 3. So I would argue that this is still important. In addition, even if you're using a pan-genotypic regimen, if you have a patient who is infected and you treat them and now the virus is back, it's actually really useful for you as a clinician to know that it's um, the same virus and not a different virus. And we'll talk about the concept of reinfection, but sadly this happens um, quite a bit, in particular in our, uh, our patients with HIV. Cirrhosis, I, I, I will belabor this point over and over again, critically important because we do make a decision in different length of treatment um, and ultimately in management following that. We kind of had the, the mantra, once a cirrhotic, always a cirrhotic. Is that completely true? Probably not. Um, probably after about 10 years, there's significant regression of fibrosis. But at this point, we don't have data to say that there's a time once someone has cirrhosis to stop surveilling patients. And until we have good longitudinal data with thing, th things like elastography, for now, anyone with severe fibrosis should be surveilled for liver cancer for the rest of their life. Prior treatment experience. Have they been treated for HCV before? Did they relapse? And if they did, what was that treatment? And that's going to be a big driver of how you retreat them. And then the big question is, is resistance testing required? I think for those of us who came from an ID background, we were all convinced with these DAA therapies that at the end of the day, when patients failed DAAs, we'd have to do resistance testing to come up with a plan. And as I will show you, amazingly, that has become less relevant, not more relevant, as we've had access to DAAs. So once you go through this list, there are other things to consider. So renal function. Some of these regimens are not approved in patients with GFR less than 30 or patients who are on dialysis. Liver function. So as I mentioned, once you make that yes-no cirrhosis, the next thing you have to do before you make a decision is calculate a child Pew score. Um, because if that person falls in the child Pew B or C category, you cannot use a hep C protease inhibitor. It's contraindicated. Um, and we have seen bad outcomes because a child PUB who looked like they didn't even have liver disease um, got a protease inhibitor containing regimen and developed uh, severe liver damage. So this is really important to do and make sure that you kind of re-up this and reevaluate it every six months and in making that decision because it can change over a six month period. Um, drug interactions we're going to talk about. We know that that's an issue. And then Hep B status. So I know you guys have probably heard some of the stories around HBV reactivation in the setting of DAAs. As ID providers, we're all very used to this in the setting of chemotherapies. But uh, in the setting of um, HCV treatment, it's something that was described in the interferon era, but less so because interferon is a Hep B agent. Um, what I would say is in HIV, this is a lot less of an issue because most of our patients are on tenofovir. Um, and so the idea of a reactivation, the setting of tenofovir is extremely unlikely since the way we treat reactivation is to put them on a HEP B active um, nuke. But I think it's still really important to, 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 for you guys to know that this can happen. So the next four slides are just going to summarize kind of where we stand in first-line therapies for, uh, for patients who are treatment naive or have failed PEG and RIBA. And, and, and the truth is, I think a patient who's failed pagan riba is pretty hard to come by these days. Most of those patients got pagan riba back in the day because they had bad liver disease. They were the first ones up for treatment in the clinic. But, 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 and, and the truth is, with our newer DAA therapies, they really don't behave or respond any differently to the treatment. So they're really now lumped together, as you'll see. 
Um, so this is the four recommended regimens by the guidelines for the treatment of a naive or peg rabbit experience Geno-1 patient without cirrhosis. And you can see here, abisvirgrosopravir for a 1A requires NS5A testing. If that patient has an NS5A RAS, then you would likely choose one of these other regimens um, because the other option is to give this regimen with ribavirin, which most of us don't think is a recommended regimen anymore. So you'll notice the recommended regimens are all now 12 weeks or less, which is amazing, even for a patient with cirrhosis. And there is no longer a recommended regimen with ribavirin in the mix. So we've come a long, long way, I would say. Um, the glucopavir preventosphere, which if you guys are okay, I'm going to call it GP from here on out because I already talked too fast and rolling through that a number of times would probably make you all the rest of you get up and leave. Um, so this is, the this is really, in my opinion, the first kind of approved outright eight-week regimen um, for treatment-naive patients without cirrhosis. Um, and we'll talk more about that. Lodiposphere cefospavir, as you can see here, is a, is a regimen that was approved for 12 weeks with the potential, as an asterisk in the FDA guidance, um, to, uh, to shorten to eight weeks in patients who are treatment naive, don't have cirrhosis, and have a viral load less than six million. So it comes with a number of caveats. The guidelines do recommend this regimen if you meet those criteria. They do not recommend this at this point in HIV-infected patients, primarily due to a real, uh, one is this was not studied in clinical trials. Two is there was a, a smaller number of patients in real-world data supporting the use of an eight-week regimen in HIV patients. I think those numbers are increasing, and you may see some movement on that for HIV, but for the time being, it still recommends not using eight weeks. And then the, the soft valve regimen is 12. So this is pretty amazing. If you, the only change I'm going to make in the next slide is now these patients have cirrhosis. And really the only change is now you just go to 12 weeks. These are all equal regimens. They're equally safe. They're equally effective. Um, but the big difference is there is no eight-week regimen at this point in time uh, for a patient with cirrhosis. Um, but this is really quite, quite amazing. Right? And you can feel pretty good. I feel pretty good. I, who, can, who knows what I'll ask for on any given day. Um, but when the insurer says, no, you have to use this one because that's our formulary, I go, okay, I mean, that's fine. Because these all work great. The SVRs are all the same. And that's a pretty good feeling um, for, for the provider and the patient, I think. So now we go to genotype 2. So these are patients, genotype 2, um, and I say with or without cirrhosis. And now you can see we have a smaller number. So these are our two kind of true approved pan-genotypic regimens. Um, and you're looking at basically 100% SVR, 99 to 100% here. You can see that the GP regimen, just remember, for a treatment-naive or peg rib failure, it's eight weeks if they don't have cirrhosis, um, and it's 12 weeks if they do, right? So that's the difference here. That's all that difference is. And then the soft valve, so the soft valve regimen is 12. So genotype 3. People kind of refer to it as the new genotype 1. If there's one that's a little bit more difficult to treat, um, it's now 3. Um, it's funny because patients come in and they still think, and they say, I've got that genotype 1. That's the more difficult one, right? And I'm like, yeah, not so much anymore. Um, they're all actually pretty easy, but if I was going to say one's more difficult, it's probably 3. Um, so what I show you here is we have the initial treatment on the top. And you can see, again, we're back to the same 2 for genotype 2. Um, it's 8 or 12. Um, if, they, if you use soft Velvox, the guidelines do recommend NS5A testing if the patient has cirrhosis. So treatment naive with cirrhosis, probably a little bit lower response rate if they have an NS5A RAS. So we do make that recommendation. That is not part of the FDA guidance. 
Um, if you get down to the treatment experience patients, you'll see that we have some off-label use here in the guidelines. Um, so again, there's recommendations for NS5A testing if a patient is going to get soft Valvox and is treatment experience, regardless of cirrhosis. And if this patient does have NS5A rasis, the recommendation is to either use the, um, the soft Valvox regimen. This is actually a complete typo. It should say soft Valvox. Um, and, uh, or this albizavir grazopavir soft regimen, which we've used actually quite a bit in our VA. Um, and is supported by some pretty large uh, uh, studies, uh, phase four studies. So this is more complicated, but again, you're looking at 12 weeks at most for this patient population, and this will still offer this group a 98% cure, which is really, really phenomenal when you think about how hard these folks were to treat previously. So the, the, for the end of this, I wanted to focus for the chronic on these two new regimens, the GP regimen and the soft Valvox regimen, and really try to help um, explain to you when, where these fall in terms of the needs um, and, and where you would presumably be using um, this reg these regimens in, in your clinic. Because there really are some differences here. So the GP regimen, again, I show you this here, it is a once daily dose regimen. It is a uh, fixed dose regimen, but it takes three pills to get the dose that's needed. So I think this is really important because some folks don't recognize this. And, and, and I think as a whole, it, it's fantastic, but there are some patients who prefer a one pill day to three pills a day, but they're all very easy to do. Completely pangenotypic, next generation. What that means is that it, the resistance patterns conferred from older generations um, do not confer phenotypic resistance to this regimen, um, but that doesn't mean that it then works just fine, and I'll show you that data. Um, it is approved in people that have severe renal disease, so GFR less than 30 is completely fair game, as well as end-stage renal on dialysis, so this is an approved regimen in patients with severe kidney disease. It does contain a protease inhibitor, um, so I always kind of put my thumbs up and say there's lots of rules of thumbs when you have protease inhibitors in the mix. You guys are used to this in HIV. It means more drug interactions, and it means that this is not going to be a regimen that's safe in people that have severe um, liver disease, and that's child pube B or C. And then there, there was a question of interactions with acid-suppressing medications, but I think we've seen some data to say that that's likely not an issue. So the registration program for this uh, drug was really huge. So they looked at eight weeks. They really wanted to go after an eight-week indication. They looked at 12 weeks in cirrhosis. As I mentioned, they looked at renal impairment, HIV co-infection, post-transplant, where they really didn't focus a lot of, of, of um, numbers in terms of patients uh, was in salvage therapy. So DAA failures, patients that have already failed a LEDSOF or a SOFTVAL or a prior PROD regimen or albizvirgozopavir, this was small. And I'm going to show you how that plays out in terms of the recommendations and the approval and how you might be using it clinically. The soft Valvox regimen is a single fixed dose combination tab like many of the others. It is also pangenotypic. Whether it's next generation is probably less clinically relevant, but it also contains a protease inhibitor. So we get right back to the issue here now of, um, of uh, drug interactions. It's going to be a little bit more difficult with our HIV folks that are on boosted regimens, protease inhibitor-containing regimens, that sort of thing. It, it contains cefospavir. So cefospavir is the drug that is not approved with a GFR less than 30. While we have increasing data of safety, it is still off-label use, and if a GFR is less than 30, or if a patient has end-stage renal disease, so this becomes a limitation for these cefospavir-containing regimens. And another major limitation is that both velpatosphere and ledipasphere, which is the other NS5A from this group, um, require acid to be absorbed in the stomach. 
Um, and that's a big issue when, uh, I won't ask for a show of hands, but, but when about half of Americans are on some sort of acid-suppressing medication. So this is a big deal, and it can be very difficult. And if a patient is on more than 20 milligrams of a PPI, um, this drug is a no-no, um, and that's a big issue. In addition, there's very clear guidance in the package insert of how it has to be taken with that 20 milligram um, uh, dose of the PPI. So this can be a significant limitation. Thankfully, we have many other great regimens. But if you have a patient, for example, who has failed an NS5A-containing regimen, this is really where, the, where, where you're going in terms of the FDA approval, and, and it may be difficult to try to get patients off PPIs. So interestingly, the registration program for this drug um, was targeted more towards salvage. So you'll see here there were some eight-week studies. There, there was an eight-week study, um, uh, two in fact, but salvage was really where they targeted, and that's where their approval came in very, very heavy. No data in HIV, uh, no data in transplant, no data in kidney disease. And like all PI-containing regimens, as I mentioned, it's contraindicated in DCOMPs. So I'm going to summarize very briefly just a little bit of this data, because when you see a graph that has 97 and 99% and a bunch of bars, it's kind of like, what's the point of that? Um, it's mostly to say, look, isn't this really, really great? Across all genotypes, eight weeks versus 12, which is the blue versus the red, you can see that this is really quite phenomenal. Um, and I will show you the genotype 3 data, but, um, but all in all, this eight-week regimen clearly performed well, and that's why it's approved. Um, there was a study, a phase three study, of this regimen in HIV-infected patients. It really is the first study um, registration trial of eight weeks. And I've had some folks who do HIV work ask me, are you comfortable with eight weeks of this regimen? And in fact, I am. I think this registration trial shows that this drug works very, very well. And as long as you can get around the drug interactions, um, the recommendations by the guidelines is that eight weeks is fine for, this, uh, for HIV patients as it is with anyone else. Again, as long as they don't have cirrhosis. So this is the phase three date. I mean, this is the genotype three issue for this uh, drug. And you can see here that, again, small numbers. But all I'm going to say is on the bottom, you can see the three pluses, because I don't think you guys can see my, my pointer. But treatment experience patients with geno three appear to have slightly lower SVR or response rates unless they got 16 weeks. So if it's a treatment experience, and I don't mean DAAs, I mean PEG and RIBA or SOF and RIBA, um, then, then 16 weeks is the recommendation. So it gets a little bit more complicated when you start getting into Geno 3 with these regimens. And the other thing I'll mention is, so Stoff Bellbox, I told you they went for an eight-week indication. They didn't get it. And that is because, as you can see here, genotype 1As had much higher failure rates. Um, I, I, because of time, I'm not going to belabor this, other than to say that this led to the fact that the FDA did not give them an eight-week indication. Um, and uh, and, and it, that probably had to do with a risk of baseline resistance testing. It was approved in the EU, interestingly, um, for eight weeks, but that was because the EU performed much better, probably because this Q80K mutation is much less common in Europe than it is in the United States. Um, so what we ended up with instead is a, um, a salvage-only indication. Um, and I'm going to show you here that that really is focused primarily on these non-NS5A soft-containing regimen failures, like a soft-SIM failure, and then the NS5A failures, like a patient who failed the prior prod regimen, the, the, the lead soft regimens. That's really where this regimen is going to have a primary role. Amazingly, there are very few of these patients. So most of these salvage therapy studies are really small because patients failing DAAs are actually pretty hard to come by, right? Most clinics are reporting, even in the real world, 97, 98% cure rates, um, which means there are very few people to salvage, and that's, that's really great news. Um, 
So this shows you the data for the GP regimen in salvage. And the point that I want you to, 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 to bring home here is you can see in these bars, there's a drop off. There's a drop off across each bar in blue and then in green. The difference there is 12 versus 16 weeks. And it is, if you failed a PI, you do well, 14 patients. You failed an NS5A only, you did okay, but you probably did better with 16 weeks. Um, and if you had a combination, if you failed a, a regimen that had a PI and an NS5A, you did not do well. So based on this, this regimen did not get an approval by the FDA for NS3 combined NS5A failures. It got an approval in PI failures, and it got an approval in NS5A only failures. Um, and, and that was for 16 weeks. So you do see some 16-week approvals here. You don't see that recommended by the guidelines because there are many great options, and they are alternative regimens because they're still very good and very effective, but they're a longer course of therapy, and therefore they are more expensive. Um, and so if you have a 12-week that works perfectly well, the reason for 16 may be that they have kidney disease um, or something like that where you need to go to that 16-week regimen. But a 12 uh, would, be, would be preferred. So again, not to belabor the point because of time, the soft Velvox regimen was studied, an entire study in NS5A failures and also one in, in kind of non-NS5A DAA failures. The bottom line is it performed very well, but as you can see here, the relapses were concentrated in patients with cirrhosis and in particular patients that were genotype 3. For that reason, the guidelines make a recommendation to add ribavirin if you have a patient who has failed, say, Daxoff um, and, uh, and, and is genotype 3 with cirrhosis. So there's still some ribavirin in there. That's the one example where it's actually recommended, which is completely off-label. But the worry is we have no idea what to do with these people. And, and it was a pretty significant signal. And there was concern that we would treat them, and, and then they'd fail and have resistance, and we wouldn't know where to go from there. All right, so I might steal a minute or two um, from the questions to talk really quickly about acute infection. This is a big issue um, for our HIV-infected patients. As you all know, this has been an epidemic ongoing now for over a decade in our HIV-positive MSM. Um, it's also a major issue uh, across the, the, the U.S. in suburban areas, as you all know, um, with the uh, opioid epidemic. This is a devastating slide from the CDC showing that this huge increase in non-urban um, uh, kids, so age less than 30. Um, so for all of us who have kids that are age less than 30, it's a pretty terrifying slide to look at. Um, and so there's really a strong interest and a big increase in, I think, a voice across the globe of the idea of treatment as prevention in HCV and a need to identify these patients early, get them on therapy, and cure them um, of their early infections, and in large part because these are likely folks who are at the highest risk of also um, continuing to propagate the infection as, as transmitters. So I'm showing you data here that is all very uh, early, although published, of uh, the idea of treating patients early in their disease course, so acute infection and maybe even very early acute symptomatic infection. So this first study here um, shows you a, a study of non-HIV-infected patients who were treated. Many of them were actually still had bilirubins that were elevated. They had jaundice. They were treated, and they cured 20 of 20. This other study was in an HIV-infected patient population. They were less symptomatic, probably a little bit more towards the chronic end in their first six months of, of, um, of infection. And you can see that there were three relapses, but these patients were treated with six weeks of lodiposphere and cefospivir. So the idea here is, in the old days, we could treat acute um, in a shorter period of time because we had the innate immune system, system helping us cure, or at least try to clear the infection. And the question is, can we do that in acute with DAAs? 
Some people may ask why you've already got eight weeks of treatment or 12 weeks. Well, one is shorter is going to be cheaper. And two is these may be very high-risk patients. Can we get to a point, for example, where we can give them a four-week bottle of pills, have them walk away, and be confident that if they take every pill, they can be cured? Um, and those studies are actually ongoing as we speak. Um, and I think that may really help us. We think about elimination, and the primary challenge to the elimination for hepatitis C is incident infection. Um, this may be our best opportunity to really get a handle on this as DAAs are rolled out. So I am going to show you, this is the last slide I'll show you, to, to, to kind of push the point that incident infection and reinfection remains a major issue. So this slide here in red and green, I'll start with that, shows you a study from France that was just presented at CROI. That, that in our MSM patients, HIV-positive MSMs, the rates of HCV are increasing, um, incident HCV. On the other side is actually the first in-human treatment as prevention study in HCV. This is from the Athena cohort in HIV-infected patients. When they removed thresholds for access to DAA therapies and they cured 70% of their population, they showed a 50% decrease in HCV incidence. Um, so, it's proof that treatment is prevention, that identification as early as possible, and hence the need for ongoing screening in your high-risk HIV-infected patients. Um, identify them early, get them on therapy. Potentially, you'll be able to do that in a cheaper fashion um, based on, on coming trials, and hopefully that will get to a point where we can truly decrease the incidence rate and potentially work towards elimination. So I think many HIV clinics ac across the country are focusing on the idea of um, of elimination in their HIV group. So in our group at Duke, we're focusing on elimination in all of our HIV-infected patients. I think it's a great place to start at home to try to, to, try to do that locally as there are, you know, a push by the WHO to, to, do, that, to do that globally. Um, and I will stop there. Wonderful. Um, you know, when we have 55% of the folks here um, indicating that they don't, haven't done a lot of this, um, this is an opportunity, right? Because our clinics, our HIV clinics, we've got a fair number, no matter where you are, of co-infected HCV. And the Ryan White Care Act will cover the cost of the medicines and the, and the evaluation. So, this, that's relatively low-hanging fruit compared to the mono-infected patients in our communities that don't have a Brown White Care Act. So a lot of us have sort of focused on uh, trying to eradicate HCV in our clinic. We set the goal for January of 18. We didn't quite make it. Um, so January 19 now. But um, we'll, we'll hopefully get it all out of the uh, patients who we follow chronically. Jeff. Susanna, thank you for... <coughs> Thank you for that nice talk. I don't know if this is going to work. Um, speaking about transmission and elimination, and I know these are very expensive, but if they were to become cheaper, are any of these amenable to be used for PrEP in high-risk outbreak settings of hep C? So that is a great question. And I mean, to be fair, you know, soft DAC is being used globally um, for programs across the globe, and um, it's less than $200 for, for a treatment. So the, the, somewhere in other places in the world, it is significantly cheaper. Your prep is a great question. And, and, the, and the, 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 I don't know that we know the answer to this, but what we do know is that um, in, in IDUs, there is clearly a higher risk. 
Um, the, the concept of PrEP to be cost effective when you have a cure on the other end, um, it, modeling um, generally would suggest at this point in time, and, and, and the only model that I know of is actually in healthcare workers where risk of uh, after a stick is actually quite low, right? Percutaneous stick risk is very low. The truth is, while we see high rates, this is still a, this is not as efficient a, a transmission when it comes to um, uh, sex practices. Um, and so I don't know that we would see it as a, as a, as a cost-effective um, uh, approach in these patients because it is not a lifelong illness because it can be cured, right? So in HIV, it's very clear that, that once infected with HIV, you have it for the rest of your life, at least for now. Um, and so cost-effectiveness really plays out for PrEP. But, but for HCV, where you potentially identify them as acute when they do convert and treat them in four to eight weeks, um, I don't know that we would see cost-effectiveness. I think the only other comment I would make about PrEP for HCV is we have animal models to show that PrEP can work in, in, in HIV. We do not have that in hepatitis C. And so the idea of how PrEP biologically would work in hep C, I think we really don't know right now. Right, but I think the fact that you can cure it sort of changes it, it the It changes the story completely. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. So speaking of acute infection, do you still have a guideline or what you use of six months to see if the acute HCV clears? So I'll tell you, I don't know how many of you were at the, the, Croy, the Croy meeting in the Hep C session, but I can tell you that this is really where the, the money is. Um, the current U.S. guidelines make a recommendation to um, give people 12 weeks to naturally clear. So, I mean, everyone here knows that HCV can naturally clear, but HIV-infected patients' clearance is probably only about 15%. So the longer you monitor them, you're trying to eke this out for those 15% who are naturally going to clear to begin with. Um, and, and so th there's a big push and a big argument that the U.S. guidelines are a little bit behind on this one because they say 12 weeks minimum, and if you're willing to really wait, then wait six whole months. And the Europeans are saying that's really just crazy. You should be treating these people as early as possible. And yes, if some of them are going to naturally clear, that's great, but you're talking about over-treating at most 15%. Um, one study that was presented at Croy showed that if you look at the viral kinetics in the first four weeks, so you identify the patient, you get their hep C viral load, you bring them back, and four weeks later, if their viral load hasn't dropped by too long, they're probably not going to naturally clear, and you should take that opportunity to treat them right then and there. Um, the big issue that we don't know in the U.S. is will insurers cover that? Um, I've actually had generally had luck, but some insurers want to sh you to show that you have evidence of HCV six months apart. Um, to prove that it's chronic, and that might be the, the issue, but for now I would argue you should do everything you can to get those people on treatment as early as possible. Is um, amiodarone treatment a uh, contraindication with uh, Eplusa? Uh, yes. So, so there, are, there are drug interactions, um, and, and the amiosophosbuvir interaction is a big one. So it is absolutely contraindicated um, uh, because of concern for heart block and or fatal arrhythmias. Uh, there were several patients, now multiple patients in Europe initially it was identified. There's a lot of Daxoff usage, and, and there were several patients who died or had life-threatening arrhythmias. So it's an absolute contraindication. And the other issue is amio is like in your body for a really long time. So you can't just stop it and then start any sophosphate-containing regimen um, for probably somewhere in the four to five month range. There has to be a long washout period with the amio. So I, I would generally argue, hopefully, you, you could get them on like a, you know, a soft sparing regimen. What's that? 
the GP? Yeah. Right. Okay. So, so the GP regiment or the Abbas Rikers Upper Regiment don't have that issue because they don't have soft. That's right. So for those of you playing at home, DAC is the cladosphere, which we don't use a lot of, but it's an asphere, right? Yes. So it's a, an S5A. An S5A. But yeah. they use it a lot in Europe. Um, they use it a lot in Europe. They're using it a lot in low and middle income countries. It's, it's now fallen off the guidelines just because we have so many other options and because it was one drug made by one company that had to be combined with another drug made by another company, which just financially um, is less palatable to, to insurers. So yeah. what about when you declare somebody cured? This is a question about SS, SVR 24. Yeah. Yes, yes. It's a great, oh, this is an evolving thing. So, you know, in the interferon days, cure was sustained biologic response 24 weeks after the completion of interferon-based therapy. So then come along the DAAs, and, and this real interest to get studies in and out and done as quickly as possible, uh, because there were a lot of patients who had really significant need, and so there were studies that looked at whether or not SVR12, so can you actually shorten that FDA endpoint and look at a cure rate um, that's 12 weeks sooner? Right? And in fact, SVR12 correlates to, SV to SVR24 at 99.8%. So, so it is very robust, and you can shorten it and then move things along quicker. The, the issue is that there are people who have what we call late relapses. Um, so one study uh, that was actually from the registration trials followed patients out, and what they found was that one in a thousand patients um, would have, if you looked at them at SVR 24, uh, would actually have viremia. And they were not reinfected, they were not new infections, because they actually had more reinfections than they did late relapses. Um, but that does happen. We've now had a patient who was actually a year out and relapsed, and they relapsed with a 1B, which is much less common in our, co in our group. And so we think it probably was a true late relapse. So these things do happen. So then it becomes the question of, should we do this based on a population level? Because on a population level, identifying one in a thousand people, probably not as important. Um, and so if you're doing this in a low income country, are you really gonna bring people back for SVR 24, SVR 48? No. But if it's in your patient population, many, many providers are now saying, this is what I do, I do SVR 12, and then I, if I'm seeing them because they have liver disease, I will test them one year later. Um, if I'm not because they don't have liver disease and I'm sending them back to their primary care provider, I say just get one more viral load one year from now. And that's assuming they have yeah. no ongoing risk because otherwise they should be getting tested every so, six months. So what we've done is kind of compromise, in the, especially in the mono-infected clinic, it, bring them back into therapy to make sure they're suppressed or whatever. Sometimes yeah. you don't have to do that. But then instead of bringing them back three months later, we'll bring we them back four to six months later and yeah. that way we're going to, yeah. you know, the patient doesn't really notice the difference. Yeah. We're, okay. we're all scarred by our rare events that happen and yeah, our one-year relapse guy kind of really Do you screen, out. would you recommend screening for hepatitis C in your PrEP clinic? Oh, that is a great question. Um, I feel like this is an evolving, very relatively interestingly evolving area, right? So if you look at Croy last year, the Amsterdam PrEP cohort reported a, a prevalence of an HCV antibody of 5% in their PrEP clinic. And about three and a half of those percent of, of those men had active HCV. Um, but uh, there's also, a, you know, and, and if you look at the numbers actually, there weren't that many that reported IDU. So some people said, oh, in these PrEP cohorts, the hep C is all coming from, you know, IDU, and yes, you should be testing IDUs, right? So, but if you remove your IDUs, there's a signal here. The, the New York PrEP group just reported it, Corey, no, no hep C at all. Um, so where's, the, what's the right answer? Yeah. Um, in my PrEP clinic, we do. 
Um, we do uh, we do testing every six months. So, so just to wrap up, we've run out of time. Uh, one last question was about screen, uh, staging, and the question is a co-infected patient population that say we're following. Uh, I think you've already answered it, but when do you use liver biopsy, or do you use it at all? No, I mean I, I use it less and less to be honest with you. Um, and uh, so so the primary population where I do liver biopsy now. Um, are people whose liver enzymes don't normalize after cure um, and who I know don't drink. And that's mostly because they probably have, well, they have NAFL and maybe NASH, and I biopsy those, those folks. Um, coming into treatment, I have had, uh, I have patients who have had completely discordant results, as I mentioned, between their FIB4 and their, and their um, fiber scan. But I, my gut usually tells me that those people have severe liver disease. So I don't do it all that frequently. It's mostly in people with abnormal liver enzymes post-cure, which, which some early data suggests is going to be about 20% of your HIV-infected patients are not going to normalize their liver enzymes after the hep C is treated. Um, and, then you're, and then you're gonna go, crap, I thought those were from the hepatitis C. Um, now I have to figure out what it's from, right? And you switch around the antiretrovirals and it still doesn't go away. And they have, they, you know, you get imaging and they have fat in their liver and it's probably fatty liver and, yeah. and potentially steatosis. And so that's where you probably are gonna need liver, uh, so, some tissue. And remember, there's a lot of fatty liver, especially those who live through the D drug days, yeah. the DDI, D4T, it yeah. kind of comes with the territory. So thanks so much, Susanna. It was Thank wonderful. you. Appreciate it.